Revive Church from Jonesboro, Arkansas. Many of their members here this morning, Lord. Thank you for arranging that. Thank you for their diligence to seek your face, to know your will, uh, to plant a church in a, in a, in a not in a very easy place, Lord, with much resistance. And yet you continue to grow them. Even to the fact, Lord, that they've grown out of their current facilities and are praying for a new one, Lord. We pray you would close that loop for them. We ask that you would bless them, Lord. Lord, thank you for a church that gives, that we can be a part of missions both here and abroad. You told the disciples to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And, and so, Lord, we, we do that. We start here and we work our way out even to the remotest parts of the world. We thank you that you let us join us in that missional effort. That is, that is a great blessing to us, Lord, to be a part of what you're doing. So, Lord, we do pray for 12-5 Church. We pray that it would be a church that would stand on your truth and your hand of blessing would be upon it, Lord. Lord, we do thank you for Riverbend. We thank you for the many, many decades of a ministry here that has proclaimed truth from this pulpit. We thank you that it has not compromised on the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you help us understand we are not a perfect church. <laughs> we have our failures, Lord. We have our times where we have not sought you. And Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God and you continue to encourage and lift up those who, who see their sin and repent and turn from those things. You're, you're always there, Lord, whether that's an individual or a church, Lord. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for your graciousness to us. You teach us how to be gracious to others. You teach us how to forgive others in the way you have dealt with us. Lord, we thank you that the ministry has far-reaching uh, uh, avenues to it, Lord. You've allowed us to do schools and missions and care for the young and the old. And, and you've, you've let us do this, Lord. And we ask that you would continue to allow us to have this outreach and ministry for your name, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all those that have made it here today. We know so many are trying to get vacations in before school starts. I, I pray you just keep them traveling safe. Even our, some of our own elders are gone, Lord. We, we just pray you'd bring them back here safely and that they would be rested and ready for what you have for them. Lord, we have others that are, uh, some are at the end of their life, just maybe even in days before they go to meet you face to face. Uh, we pray for them. We pray for their families that are surrounding them even at this moment, Lord that you would give them strength, that the gospel would be resounded even in the death of your godly one, that you will not leave them nor abandon them. They will never be out of your presence from this life to the next. There is no separation. And so we pray for those families going through that. Others, Lord, going through treatment, cancer treatment, uh, going through injuries and struggles that, that have, may have happened to them, Lord, give them strength to trust you. Lord, we are, we are but dust at times, and we are weak, and, and often our trials push on us. And, and I pray it would, it would only help us be more stronger in our faith, more committed, more confident in you, Lord. And yet, humbly coming to you for help as a son, as a daughter comes to a father. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be those kind of people. Lord, now we turn to your word. It is a precious passage that reminds us to abound in the work of the Lord. To be faithful. To let the gospel motivate our service, our giving, our sacrifice, all the things that you call us into in this relationship with you. May this message challenge us and yet encourage us. We thank you for the word of God. We can stand on it. It does not change like society. It does not change because it is a perfect reflection of you. It is your word, your truth. And so now, Lord, hear us as we teach your truth and plant it deep within our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to turn your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. The passage that Rick read, I will get to that momentarily um, as a great example. We are finishing up the book of 1 Corinthians 15. If you're here visiting with us, we have been working our way context through context through this great book. It has been a challenging one, but, but one that the church, we believe, today needs to hear. We have seen so many issues that are arising constantly within today's church that the first century had to deal with in this church called Corinth. We come to the end of chapter 
15, it is a great chapter that starts with a clear proclamation of the gospel and then leads us into the glorious resurrection of Christ. And if Christ is raised, then he will raise us also, giving us bodies like him. And what confidence to understand and grasp the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after these 57 verses of doctrine, Paul comes to one of the greatest therefores, I think, in the Scriptures. He says it this way, therefore, verse 58, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. The exhortation that follows this great therefore is a powerful one. It certainly is based on the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We will not see the second death. If you are a Christian, you'll never see the second death. That's judgment. That's hell. That's eternal judgment from God. We have victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We will not see that. We have a body that will be, is prepared for us. That will be like Christ. What a great charge. But I don't think this therefore is just about that. <laughs> I think it's a therefore that is enlisting the members of this Corinth church to, to understand, to live unashamedly, and to do the work of the Lord. I think he's gathering in this, this whole letter. And, and yes, he has a little wrap-up to do in chapter 16. We'll get to that in the next two weeks. But, but, but he's trying to gather them in, trying to help them understand that there, there's a result, there's something that must come from this instruction, and it is that we abound in the work of the Lord. So many churches today die on molehills. They want to fight over things that cause them to be distracted from the work of the Lord. We see it all the time. We battle that here. There's always these little pressures coming from all over the place, trying to draw us away from what we believe the work of the Lord is, to love Christ, to love his word, to love his people. That's the work of the Lord. You're going to hear me say that many times this morning. And those churches, they become empty vessels. They're, they're not being poured out for Christ. They get drug away on so many little things. And, and this is exactly why the apostle was challenging this church. It had been dominated by its emotions. It had been dominated by fears and false teaching. It had, it had become a church that was an empty vessel in some sort. It had proven that they were erratic. They were scatterbrained often. They were easily discouraged. And they were led astray by worldly things, worldly philosophies, Gnosticisms and myths. These things had drugged them away and caused them to have factions among them. And they became disunified and unedifying to one another. So Paul has determined that he would remind them that as Christ beat death and was raised from the dead and, and has a resurrected body and we will have one like his, he is determined to help them learn to stand on truth so that they are abounding in the work of the Lord. You get away from the truth of the word of God, you will not abound in the work of the Lord. You'll abound in your own work. You'll abound in some kind of ideology that you've come up with or some philosophy that somebody has, but you won't abound in the work of the Lord. It is based in truth. As I thought about that, I just let my mind kind of wander back through the chapters, and, and it just taught me again and again that he's been teaching them truth all the way through. And, and, and truth is the key here. And so the apostle's been pouring this truth onto him. And he told them from the beginning, he said, truth is precious. Otherwise, the word of the cross is foolish. Can you imagine that as a Christian? He, he said to them in this first chapter, the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But here's the truth. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. It's everything to us. It is the view of an almighty God. As we look at the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is a view of our glorious God, and it is power to us. When that gets robbed from a church, and other things start to come in, they lose their effectiveness. Paul taught 
on true Christ-centeredness. He said, I'm determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You want to get into all this factitious behavior? You want to get into finger-pointing and all this stuff? That's what will deter you away. I'm determined to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what he's trying to take the church to. Is He everything to you? See, he's after that. In this last verse, 57 verses of doctrine on the resurrection, this last verse, he's pouring it on. He's bringing application to this. Oh, you know how he works his way through this epistle. He told them that the truth is that we now have the mind of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? As saved children of God, I no longer am to be consumed with the mind of the world. I have the mind of Christ. And how do I have that? Through the truth of God's word, that reminds us of those things. Truth that comes to those who build on a foundation, chapter 3 of Jesus Christ. We build on that foundation, not of our own. And that will be proven, the Bible tells us in that passage. Uh, you know, that's, I think, the great judgment that we'll go through. Not for sin, but what we did with the Lord. Throw them in. Precious metals. Maybe, maybe crowns that come from that that we cast at the saver's feet? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble and just a poof? See, see, that's the difference between truth and man's own opinions or man's thoughts or man's self-centeredness. Oh, he told them that the foolishness of man will be burned up. All that will be lost. He reminded them of the immutable and movable word of God over and over. He told them that their bodies were temples of God. How dare you give that body away to something that does not honor God? He has chosen from the foundations of the world to save you at a certain point in time and indwell you and make your body, make your life the home of his spirit. You belong to him. You're his. He wanted these people to be truth seekers. And he said, follow me as I follow Christ. I am dedicated to following the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to imitate me, great, because I'm going after Jesus. Man, is that not great parenting advice? Grandparenting advice? Follow me as I follow Jesus. Oh, you won't get in trouble there. They'll, they'll walk, walk in behind you, and, 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 and you'll direct them to the Lord Jesus. But this church was following all its own whims, its, its philosophies. They were caught up in judging each other and, and then going to the world and letting the world judge them. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Let them handle that. What do they have to do with the church? So he brought truth to help them settle their disputes among them. Truth was to dominate these things. It was to open their eyes to immorality. Remember that their body was a, was a picture of the body of Christ. We are all individual members made up of the body of Christ. He redirects their thinking about marriage and gender. He takes off their roles. He, he makes them think truthfully about the role of singleness and marriage and how, and how that is a display of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He challenges them with truth not to be stumbling blocks to weaker Christians. This was a major issue within Corinth. They, they felt so free to do whatever they wanted. And they were stumbling the younger ones. He says, truth sets you free from that. Truth makes you say, oh, I would never want a young one to be stumbled. Boy, Jesus took that on, didn't he? You, you cause one of these young ones to stumble? What's better? <laughs> Put a leash around your neck, tied to a millstone, and throw yourself into the sea. Christians often are stumbling blocks to other Christians, and this was true within this church, but truth sets you free of that. You speak truth in love, and you no longer become a stumbling block. He reminded the church to, to seek truth and stop integrating the worldliness and pagan rituals that hindered the gospel. They wanted to have a worldlyism, just like their pagan festivals and the world that they were in, their families were involved with, and they wanted to integrate that with the world of Christianity. Man, God says, come out from among them. You're no longer part of them. 
And that's a problem today. We see within the American church there's this constant integration with uh, a fallen fool's uh, wisdom. Church after church caves on the simplest teachings of what is a woman. What, what is marriage? What is gender? What, what, what is allowed to come into the eye of a man? And yet those things are quickly being dismissed. Paul taught them truth, how to overcome temptation, which was common to man. He taught them to hold on to truth. He taught them that truth would provide a way of escape versus falling back into repeated sin. He taught them the beauty of the family. He taught them the beauty of roles. And he taught them the beauty that it ultimately shows and displays the gospel. That's what marriage does. And that's why roles were so important to the Bible. They're so clear. God has a beautiful role for men and women. They are different. They are equal, but they are different. Each one of them bringing unique glory to God. And when those get abandoned, truth is pushed off to the side. Truth was to drive their view of spiritual gifts. They were pursuing spiritual gifts for gifts for self-gratification. Paul says you pursue spiritual gifts for unity and edification, the glorification of Christ. That was lost. Truth recognizes that God had given them a, a deep love, perfected in Christ. It's so interesting that he has to come back to the chapter 13 to bring them to the simplistic statement of love is the best. That's what happens when you lose truth. You lose love for one another. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. This was going on in this church. And so he tells them, look, all these other gifts will cease. They'll be done away with. They'll all fall away. But Christ-like love will never fail. And he urges them to truth to pursue that. Truth would never let you stay in a childlike state. Often Paul spoke to them as children. They had not grown. They, had, they were not mature. But it's truth that matures you, brothers and sisters. It's truth that raises you up to be someone who God can use. It's one who becomes abounding in the work of the Lord. It's, all of that is based on truth. The truth of God's word. And so we must, we must grab onto that. Or you will stay immature. You will be shaped by the world, not shaped by the truth. You will be conformed to the the world and not conform to the image of Christ. These were his concerns. Truth will take away the beauty of the gospel. I I love the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. They are just flat out, undeniable, the clearest expression of the gospel. And you say, why does he have to do that? Because they weren't seeking truth. They need to be reminded of that. And because of that, they, they were even wrestling whether Jesus had raised from the dead. They, they didn't understand that. And so he has to work his way down through a passage to help them understand if Christ isn't raised, we're not raised, it's all over. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. And so he fills their mind with truth that Jesus did raise from the dead and because of that you will get a body like his that's imperishable immovable where sin, Satan and death cannot get to and then he says therefore therefore 15 chapters of doctrine 15 chapters of truth And we come to this verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, sure in your mind, that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's a great challenge, isn't it? I'm going to give you three thoughts to kind of drive this verse home in our minds. Number one, God's biblical prescription for our transformation. God's biblical prescription prescription for our transformation. I think this is it, this verse right here. It's us being steadfast in truth, being immovable in truth. 
ones who are abounding in the work of the Lord so that when it's all done, it wasn't done in vain. Just as in chapter 15, we have these 57 verses of doctrine. Uh, and then this one verse of application, it's so strong and it needs time spent on it. I spent time on it last week. We helped. We kind of looked at giving. That was the main thrust of that, how we can abound in the Lord in giving. And now, now bounding in the Lord and living in this one. But most of Paul's epistles are this way, right? When you think about it, if, if you study his epistles, the first two, three, four, maybe in some cases five chapters are doctrine. And then he turns to application. This is the way he does it. And, and there's a reason for that because application must flow from doctrine. It has to come that way. There's no other way. And if you reverse it, when application seeks to create doctrine, you have a huge problem. It's going to be centered around man, not God. And this is what we see today in particularly America's church. We run to pragmatism. We run to application long before we understand doctrine. So now we have not rock to stand on. We have sand to stand on. Because it's constantly there to, to try to help you get through this life and you're the greatest thing in the world and you find yourself on sand. Doctrine builds the rock so you can stand. That's the way Paul preaches. That's the way the Bible's set up. So we understand this. And so Paul has taken these 57 verses just in this text alone, let alone the whole chapter the whole book, the whole letter, to come to this point, to bring them to this point of application. And when application comes from doctrine, it becomes rock solid. Notice he starts this beautiful challenge off with my beloved brethren. Now you just led, read and heard or, or just listened to me give kind of an overview of this book and you go, I, I, if you're like me, like, are they brethren? <laughs> Sounds like there's maybe some that weren't above them. But this, these words introduce this concluding statement. And Paul uses it quite often. But it's an endearing, it's a very personal term. He wants to draw them into action now. You've heard the rebuke. Your sins have been exposed. Truth has been given. Now what are you going to do with it? He's calling them into action. He's bringing them in. Many times, Paul, I said this earlier, saw the immaturity, and he referred to them as children. And it's because, honestly, he was their spiritual father in so many ways. And, and through his preaching and his teaching and this inspired letter, he, he was striving to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. Fathers, it's one of the things why we read the Bible, dads. Because we learn to shepherd our family the way the Bible shepherds us. It's concerned about our souls. The Bible's concerned about our hearts. That's what a good father does. We, we get so carried away with the outwardness of our children that they sit right, say right, do right, do all those, line up in all the right, right rows, and then we miss their heart. Such good instruction. And as we see Paul, he shepherded him like a father would shepherd his children. And yet at the same time, Paul sees his own position in Christ as equal to them, even though they were immature. He says, my brethren. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, you guys are at a lower level, hope you get up to me one of these days. He brings himself into equality with Christ. And then he begins the challenge. Be steadfast. Certainly, this could be translated, become steadfast. There's an imperative verb in there that we translate to be or to become there. It's a call to action. It's, it's a command to apply all this doctrine and start living it out that you've heard. See, believers are exhorted to be dedicated to the Lord. And Paul does this all the time. He loves this word steadfast. He, he told the Colossians church in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds... Yet he, God, has now reconciled you. He, Christ, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What an amazing set of verses. That's our standing, right? It's a standing of holiness in Christ. But then he says this. Here's how you know this happens. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. 
Wow. You want to know if you're saved? You're steadfast. Yeah, you may go through struggles. There may be times of doubt. There's things that go on, but you do not leave the gospel. You cling to it. You cling to Christ. He's everything to you. Paul has constantly challenged a church to remain firm in the Lord, not wavering, even amongst this onslaught of false teaching. Can you imagine? There's people in the church telling you to divorce because you'll be more spiritual. This is what's going on. Do you remember that in chapter 7? Paul's saying, hang on. Stand firm. Be steadfast. I I love the Greek word itself. It's in an adjective form. It means to be settled, to be seated, to be fixed, be firm. Be solid is the idea. And Paul's telling this church, settle down. Get a hold of your emotions. Let truth be your guide. That's what you think. Settle down from all the crazy things, all the things that are drawing your attention away from Christ, his word. And remember, you're going to be raised from the dead. (laughs) Remember, you have an inheritance that cannot perish or pass away. Remember these things. What application to this great doctrinal book? They're charged to, to get a grip on their convictions. Are you convicted over truth? Does it mean anything to you? Or do you punch your card because you went to church that week? Is this conviction? Is this what you believe? Or does somebody else believe it for you? He says, get your grip around this. Start thinking biblical. Have biblical convictions. Stop being pushed around by these waves that come and take you off the rock. So you'll never serve the Lord if you're not settled. So he says, remember, he's abounding in the work of the Lord is the main emphasis here. But, you, but people don't abound in the work of the Lord because they're not settled. They, they haven't sat down on Christ and said, this is it. I, I look for none other. He's everything to me. And so they're pushed around by things. They're pushed around by their own desires. They're pushed around by relational theology. What happens to their children or this or that? How many pastors have I read just of recently who've changed their view on biblical marriage because they had a son or daughter who joined the homosexual movement? And look, all of us know the difficulties within family, but we speak the truth in love to them, not compromising. It's the best thing we can do lovingly there, ready when God gives the opportunity to stand steadfast on God's word. It's their only hope. Join them in their sin and send them to hell. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's a call to the church to be steadfast. And, 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 and please, just that's one issue. There's a million other things, right? There's another whole aspect of immorality and and love of the world, and all the things that pull people away. How will you speak the truth and love to them? The next adjective, writing on the same imperative verb to become, is this word immovable. It's an amazing word. It's a Greek compound word. It means two words kind of made up. Hameta is the idea of not. And then it, it uses this Greek word kenos, we, we actually get our word cinema from it, our English word cinemas, and cinema is what mo- motion pictures, right? So not moving is the idea of this word. And, and, and it's telling us that if we stand on truth, we are to be unmovable. This, this is Paul's exhortation to Corinth. To not move away from this spiritual position that God has granted. It's a spiritual securing in Christ that he's saying. You're secure in Christ. Stand secure in him. Of course, this is not standing in false teaching and unbiblical practices. But it's clinging to Christ. Cling to him. Cling to his truth. Love Christ. Love his word. Love one another. Three things, church. Three things, love Christ, love his word, and love one another. If we do those three things, oh, what would God do with us? But we get off track on all of those at times. The church has done historically through that. See, I think what he's saying is, look, Corinth, look, Riverbend, grab on to Jesus. 
Secure yourself in his word and then you'll grow in love for him and love for each other and you'll abound in this great work of the Lord. Otherwise, risk being tossed to and fro and sent over here and sent over there by false doctrine and worldly wisdom. Now notice, once you have said, oh Lord, I want to be steadfast, I want to be immovable in the truth of God's word, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have an opportunity to excel in the work of the Lord. Quite honestly, as we look at people who desire ministry, these are the things we look. Do you you love Christ? Do you love his word? And do you love his people? Those three things must be evident to entrust you with the souls of God's people. And I don't care if those are God's people that are this high or as old as the oldest members we have in here. Love Christ. Love his word. Love his people. It will become evident that you're abounding in the work of the Lord. I I love this term. This phrase expresses a sense of urgency, right? An emphasis here. Abound. Abound in the work of the Lord. And notice he throws in a little adverb there, always. I think he's highlighting the urgency of this. Corinthian church, you've wasted a year and a half since I was there. You've got involved in all these other things. And, and now you're, you're behind. The churches in, in, um, in Asia are out ahead of you. They, they're, 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 they're smaller churches. They're poorer churches. And yet they're excelling. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. This term abounding is a fun term as well. It means there's... There's never enough, right? There's just, there's a, you're just, you're abounding more and more. You've not got there, right? You're still abounding. It carries the idea of abundance with leftovers. Uh, Extremely rich. Um, Some translations have the word attached to it. Lavished, overflowing, and excelling. Paul said, I've learned to live in humble meads, but I've learned to live in abundance. It's the same word. God has given me more than I need. That's the idea. I want to live out more than what's expected of me. Isn't that the problem sometimes? Well, what do you want, pastor? I'm a bit of church. I give money. What do you want from me? I want what the Lord wants. I don't want us to abound in the work of the Lord. I I see, I think Paul's saying here is, look, you're going to heaven. You're going to be raised to glory. You're going to be rewarded for your work. Why are you dabbling with it? Why are you not diving into the work of the Lord? There's a great end to this. I think what happens is this world just has a way of working its way into our hearts and minds, and it becomes so consumed. This moment is the moment of all moments, and everything comes down to this moment, and we lose the great view of the end. And we soon get pushed off our path. Have you ever been exhausted for Christ? I know these are hard questions. Absolutely at the end of yourself because you've been abounding in his work today. Now now make sure that you understand we abound in the work of the Lord in many, many ways. In our roles that we play. But it also includes the work of the gospel. Have you ever been just exhausted? Have you ever lived out your doctrine that you believe in such a way that you've worked so hard for the kingdom of God, you're exhausted? See, Paul does that. He gives us a list of things he's been through. Dangers in this and dangers in that and dangers in that. You go, well, that's Paul. You know, it's as though... He and Peter and church leaders and certain people, they live up here and then we just kind of get along down here. The Bible doesn't write that way. Have you ever been exhausted for Jesus? You've prayed so hard. You've studied so hard. You've, you've loved so hard. You've given so hard that you have nothing left. Somebody said, Scott, I'm retired. Or others may say, Scott, I'm trying to work for my retirement. I've told people so many times, I said, Christians don't retire. We just get retreaded. You wore out the tread that God had for you and that job and that, and that 
part of that life that God had you there to work for him and to care for him. And then he just retreads you and puts you in another one. It's just a, it's just a life, right? It's, it's just this little, short, maybe 75 to 85 years, if you're, if you're blessed to live that long. That's all it is. Eternity is forever. And so Paul says, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? This idea of abounding carries overdoing it. <laughs> Scott, you're overdoing the sermon. You think? Can you overdo this? Can you speak of the glory of Christ enough and the desire to live for him? See, this is, this is more than expected living, Right? This is more than what I think the current church thinks of. It's, it's giving, it's, it's serving, it's being available. And even, I think, I thought of this all week, even during these challenging times our church is going, several people have come up to me lately and said this to me, Pastor, God is pushing us to serve more. We want to be involved. We want to give more. We want to serve more. I'm so grateful. It just encourages my heart, but, but, but look how Christ is glorified in that. Well, in the last two points, I just want to show you a few examples. Number two, abounding in the Lord by giving yourself to the Lord. I've got to hurry here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Yeah. I was in this text last week, and certainly the context is the giving to the church in Jerusalem. They're really suffering. There's a tremendous amount of persecution going on in there. The church is scattered in Jerusalem and Paul is sending out letters and reminding the churches to give, right? So Paul's focus is, um, is, is giving to meet some needs, but I think his focus is much deeper than that. His, his goal is that they give their lives. Look at verse 5. This is, this is what's so key about this Macedonian church. And this not as we had expected, talking about this participation with them. Now notice this. I think this is the key phrase. If you want to bound in the work of the Lord, this is the key phrase. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And again, he goes on to use Jesus as the ultimate example. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The King of kings, the Lord of glory, the creator of all, steps out of heaven, adds human, human, humanity to himself. He is fully God. He is fully man. But yet he lives on this earth. And in all reality, he became poor. That's what he's saying. So that, look at the end of the verse, you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's his motivation. That's how you give to the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, just over a page to your left. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us. That's a Greek word. I mean, drives us is the idea of that Greek word there. Having concluded this, that one who died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. That's all the elect. That's all the believers. So that they who live might, look at this. I hope you mark this in your Bible. Might no longer live for themselves. That, that is the goal of the gospel. That we no longer live for ourselves, but we live to glorify the Lord. That is the chief purpose of God, to bring glory to himself through his creation. That's his goal. And so as you go back here to chapter 8, just turn back the page again, you begin to see this, this Macedonian Christians, they were, they were special, they were Christ-like examples. They gave themselves first to God in verse 5. And, and, and there's no way to give yourself to the work of the Lord until you give yourself to the Lord. There's, money, money's just not a problem with God. He, he doesn't, he, he's not lacking anything. And, and so when we think about that, we go, so do I just give money or do I give myself and then that pushes me to serve, to give, to sacrifice? You give yourself. Here I am, Lord. See, we always create conditions upon the Lord 
in order to serve if we don't give ourselves. Let me me explain. The church often has to create the most perfect positions in order for someone to volunteer. Okay, we need your help in children's ministries, but you don't have to work Sundays because I know that's hard on you. And you laugh at that. You only have to work one Sunday, then one month, and then you're off. And, and if, you know, if you have a vacation, let us know. We'll, we'll make sure we have three people ready for you. And, and we always have to create so much to get people to, to be involved. And we ask the question, why? I think it comes down to because we don't give ourselves to the Lord. Years ago. I got off the plane with Steve Fernandez, uh, president of our last seminary. He's with the Lord now. I'm walking off the plane, coming off the jetway. We're in, we're in India. Chris Williams, the head of uh, the ministry there in India, kind of MacArthur's right-hand man, church planning, uh, s- translating all of his sermons, speaking his voice for him. Um, Chris comes up with open arms and greets Steve. And Steve <laughs> walks off the jetway and says, I've come to die. I'm pretty young at that point. I'm going, uh, I don't remember him telling me about coming along to die. The more I spent time with Steve, I realized everywhere he went, he came to die. He taught Gene and I good lessons. When we get off planes in the Philippines and around the world, I now say the same thing. Nilo, I've come to die. And we laugh, but look, we are there. And we give ourselves in every moment. And, and we are totally exhausted for the Lord, and I love that. But, but you, you, you just come and you say, whatever. Scott, will you, will you go visit this church? Was it on the plan? Was it on the schedule? Absolutely. Will you go here? Will you go here? Will you go do that? Will you do that? Absolutely. What do you want me to do? I've come to die. I've come to die to myself, to my own agendas, what I think needs to be done and how I think it needs to be done. I've come to die. I think that's the fail in so many Christians as they they come not to die but to come and figure out things for you to do them better and we have to try to configure how that is all going to work and how we can get you involved and it's exhausting (laughs) and then and then some sweet people walk up and say how can I serve I'll do anything I've come to die see that was what the Macedonian church was like they came to die like Christ. They came motivated by the love of Christ. Look at verse 7 and 8. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all eagerness, in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. He's given them credit. He said, look, Corinth, you've done a little better. You're starting to, your faith is growing. Your knowledge is growing. But you're not abounding in this gracious giving work. And then he goes, I am not speaking this as a command, but look at this. But as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. Proving through the earnestness of others. Paul says, I'm going to prove to you that you can give yourself to the Lord through that Macedonian church. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I'm here to prove to you that there are other Christians who gave all. Will you? Verses 2 and 3, a little more information about this church in Macedonia. That it was a great ordeal, great ordeal of affliction, their their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowing in the wealth of liberality. For I, Paul, testify, I'm going to bear witness as the idea of the word there, that according to their abilities and beyond their abilities, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urgent, urging for the favor, and I love this word, of participation. Lord, how can I participate in the furtherance of the gospel? Here's my list of demands. (laughs) No, no. How can I participate? Last week I gave you the example of an elder that I had to counsel years ago who wasn't giving financially to the church because they said their giftedness was their gift. What's wrong? We give our lives. We give everything belongs to the Lord. We established that last week. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. We are now just being entrusted, as Rick read that great quote, 
that we're being entrusted with his stuff, how much will we entrust back to him? See, Paul's urging them in just the opposite way. Since God has so wonderfully gifted you, you should be wonderfully gifting others. But that all starts with giving yourself to God. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Have you ever said that? You've read that about little Samuel when he was in the house of the Lord. You've read that about other prophets in the Bible. Here I am, Lord. Have you ever said that to him? You know, in the old days, and I'm, I'm not going to get to my third point. We'll come back to it next week because it is a lot of fun. Uh, don't laugh at me. My, my heart is earnest and true. It really is. But in the old days, those of us that have been in church for a while, you remember the times of rededication services. There was times to rededicate your life, and like many things, they got abused and misused, right? And a lot of arm twisting and emotionalism and lack of truth. They kind of faded away. But maybe it's time to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe it's time to say, Jesus, I'm not going to hold anything back. I've never met a person on the street or a person totally devoid of anything because they gave everything to the Lord. I've never met a person like that. Maybe you have. If you have, come tell, tell me. I've never met a person totally destitute because they gave everything to the Lord. It just doesn't happen. He doesn't do that to his children. But it all starts with giving ourselves to the Lord. As I was writing the sermon, thinking through it, meditating on it all week, and then finally putting it down on paper, I thought of a great hymn writer. It's a gal, actually. Her name is Frances R. Habergal. She was known for her service to the church around the world, but she was a great hymn writer. And she is known to this day for her best-known hymn, not because it, it kind of took off within the church, it's because she modeled it. This was her hymn written in the 1800s. She said this, Take my life and let it be. Consecrate it, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold Take my intellect and use every power as those thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasured store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Wow. What a song. And she lived it out. And she was known for those words of living those out. And, and so that's what we do. And we find ways to use our mouth and our moments and our hands and our feet and our finances and our wills, all of that. And so we teach a Bible study. We host a Bible study. Maybe you clean somebody's house for the Lord. I heard that happen recently. You watch children from the Lord. You teach children for the Lord. You visit shut-ins for the Lord. You become a greeter for the Lord. You disciple someone for the Lord. You call on the sick for the Lord. You do maintenance on his buildings for the Lord. You stack chairs for the Lord. You create prayer groups for the Lord. You you faithfully pray for one another for the Lord. You submit to others for the Lord. You fulfill your God-given role for the Lord. You encourage singles for the Lord. You learn to biblical counsel for the Lord. You mentor other parents for the Lord. You answer a telephone for the Lord. You help the elders for the Lord. You serve as a deacon, a minister of mercy for the Lord. You, you pursue the pastorate for the Lord. You take a class for the Lord. You stack chairs for the Lord. You sing for the Lord. You sign for the Lord. You techie for the Lord. You play an instrument for the Lord. You create safety for the Lord. You fix something that's broken for the Lord. Should I go on? It's a commitment to Christ. It's a commitment to Him. It's a commitment to our Jesus, our Lord, His Word, and His people. That's what that verse is about. Take my life. Let it be 
consecrated, Lord, to thee. Father, as we prepare our hearts to go to the table, I can't think of a more adequate passage. We take the table not for salvation. We've already been given that. That juice and that cup, they, that, that can do nothing for us salvific-wise. You've done that through Jesus Christ alone. That cup is to remind us of what you did. It's not to cleanse our conscience of maybe some evil we've done this week. It's to bring us to worship. It's to bring us to an overwhelming desire to be exhausted for you. Lord, I ask as we take this cup in a moment, and as a worship team leads us in singing, that we would give you our lives first. Take my life and let it be consecrated only for thee. In Jesus' name, amen.